I just want to get into some great text this morning. This is our last message on the theology of giving, and this one's going to take a different approach. Up until now, we have been looking at what we are supposed to give and how we are supposed to give. Um, But today, we're going to look at what we can ask the Lord to give to us. Now, that might seem uh, maybe a little bit ironic or, or a little bit greedy in some senses because the Lord's already given us so much, right? Last week, we detailed for about four or five minutes uh, some of the things the Lord's done. That wasn't a complete list, but boy, it, I don't know about you, but it overwhelmed me. But the key to this study is um, that this is about asking the Lord for the right gifts, See, a lot of times the Bible says you ask and you don't receive because you're praying for the wrong things. You're asking amiss. You're asking selfishly. And it may seem pure in our hearts, but the intent and the, and the motive and the outcome is directed toward us. But there are things that we can ask for from the Lord that are right. And they're gifts that will cause us to mature. There are gifts that will cause us to be stronger in the Lord. And there are gifts that will bring glory to God so that other people will know Him and trust Him. When we ask the Lord for those things, God is pleased and ready to answer. These are not things that we're going to consume for ourselves, not things that are going to bring us any kind of attention or glory. It's only what will please Him. And that's the reminder we get here in Psalm 115. So look at verse 1 and let's start there, okay? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. Now, I love how the songwriter repeats himself, right? Not to us, as if we didn't get it the first time, not to us, but to your name. See, our pride has such a powerful pull, right? And it never stops trying to glorify itself. But here, the line is drawn. It is a definitive need for us to to draw this line and to have a steadfast determination that we're going to commit to every day as an act of dying to self. To say to the Lord, today, Lord, not to me. Not about me. Not for me. Not, not so I would be seen. Not to me, but to you. May you alone get the glory in everything I do. You've poured out your love. You've poured out your mercy on my life. I'm yours. You own me. I'm adopted. I'm your child. I'm your servant. And I want to walk in your truth. You must increase. I must decrease. So don't allow me to be selfish. How many times have you prayed that? I can't remember the last time I said to the Lord in the morning, Lord, don't let me be selfish today. Don't let me be full of pride today. Don't let me seek any glory for myself today. I only want to point people to Christ. When people meet me, I want them to see Jesus. When when people hear me talk, I want them to hear Jesus. When, When people see my character, I want them to see the holiness of God in me. That's that's really a difficult prayer because it can't be insincere. It can't be half hearted. And once we pray it, guess what? The Lord expects us to follow through on it. So, can we pray, Lord, not to me, not to me, but to you? Now drop down to verses 13 and 14. He will bless those who fear the Lord. The small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. Even as we're asking for nothing to be credited to our account, 
the Lord shows the extent of his grace in his response to that request. Notice the connection in verse 13 between fearing the Lord, which indicates reverence and faith and a, and a fully committed, fully surrendered life. Notice the connection between fearing the Lord and the blessing of the Lord. The end of verse 13 says it doesn't matter who you are, small, great, it doesn't matter what your position is, because the full extent of God's grace is available to any person. Black, white, Asian, uh, Latino, doesn't matter. God's grace is available to everybody. Male, female, poor, rich, rural, city, doesn't matter. God's grace is available to anybody. But he says, when you're my child, look at the verse. He says, I'll give the increase. Now, we tend to think of increase in terms of numeric terms and material terms like, I got a salary increase or the stock market increased today, or uh, why does my waistline, waistline keep increasing? Um, those, those, are, those are things that we talk about in terms of numeric uh, figures or in terms of material terms, but those aren't the types of increase that the Lord wants to give us the most. The Bible, I did a little study on increase. It says he wants us to increase in righteousness, wants us to increase in gladness, wants us to increase in spiritual fruit, wants us to increase in knowledge and in faith and our love for each other. None of those things is self-centered. None of those things is God saying, I want you to increase in wealth. I want you to increase in prominence. I want you to increase in, in, in your bottom line. I want you to be known and wealthy and happy. Like I heard somebody say the other day, you don't come to church for God, you come to church to be happy. And God wants you to be happy. What heresy that is. That's heresy. God never says, I want to just give you so you have material wealth, so you'll be happy because it's all about you. It's not all about me. It's all about Jesus. That's why David said in the first verse, not about me, not about me. So God gives the increase. And when we pray for things that aren't self-centered, God is happy to give the increase because it makes us more like Christ and brings more glory to his name. So if we ask those things, he's going to be glad to answer those requests, right? And it'll be right to pray those things because we'll be receiving, as the verses say, in order to be more holy and we'll be receiving in order to give back to other people. Look back at verse 1 just for a second. It says the primary objective of our lives is to bring glory to God, which means that we not only praise him privately and, and publicly for all he's done, but it also means that everything is supposed to be deflected away from us. There's never one moment where we can brag about our righteousness. There's never one moment where we can say, look at my ability and look at my strength. Look at all that I have accomplished. It's all about Paul Rhodes. Look at my resume. I mean, I'm pretty amazing. And God says, nope, you're worthless. You're a sinner and you're only saved by my grace. So it's not about you, it's about me. Everything is from the Lord. Everything is about the Lord. And nowhere is that more obvious than when it comes to the spiritual transformation that's taken place because of his grace and his mercy. So one of the greatest prayers that we can pray is, Lord, decrease me. 
Lord, decrease me. I want to encourage us to pray that every day this week. Lord, decrease me. Bring glory to your name through me. And when we do that, then we're going to be able to give out to other people. Now, let's look at four other ways that we can ask for the right things. All right, you ready to turn? Turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5. We're going to spend just a couple minutes in each passage just so we can get some strength this morning. Luke 17, 1 to 5. I'll start reading as you turn. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, then forgive him. The apostles, verse 5, said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. First request, all right? We're going to have four requests this morning that we need to be praying to ask for the right things. The first request should be consistent in our lives. Lord, give me stronger faith. Lord, give me stronger faith. Now, the text kind of divides into two sections with this request right in the middle. And notice he says that stumbling blocks, he's warning about stumbling blocks spiritually uh, to other people. He says they're inevitable. So the issue is not whether we're going to have things that, that threaten our walk, like Michelle talked about, things that, that impede our faith. The issue is not that they will happen, because they will. Spiritual warfare will be constant. The issue is whether you and I are the cause of them. So stumbling blocks are going to happen. There are going to be things this week that threaten to trip us up, strip us of our faith, try to push us away from obedience, try to get us away from loyalty to the Lord, kind of make us dull about the Word, make us not want to come to Bible study, make us not want to pray. There, there are going to be all kinds of things. That's not the issue of whether that's going to happen. The issue is of whether you're causing them. And Jesus doesn't exactly mince his words here, does he? He says it would be better for you to have a weight put around your neck and you to be thrown into the ocean than to cause another believer to be hindered or set back spiritually because of your actions. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty sobering little text, right? What we say, the choices we make, the sin we allow, it's all being measured by the Lord. And not just measured in terms of, of, of uh, my sense of commitment and how, how fully I'm committed to the Lord. Not, not just in terms of that, but the Lord measures it in terms of how my actions are impacting other people. We never operate in isolation. Even the sins we commit and we think they're in complete privacy, nobody's looking, nobody knows. Even those sins will ultimately show up in our character, in our mind, in our words, and our actions. And they will be detrimental. So what does Jesus say? Look back at the text. He's on guard. Not only for that reason, but for how it relates to the spiritual accountability in our relationships. 
One of the ways that we can give back to each other is to hold each other spiritually accountable, to protect each other and to strengthen each other, to build each other up. That's a function of the body. You're accountable to me, I'm accountable to you. My job is to protect you, not as your pastor, but as a fellow believer, as a co-laborer in Christ. My job is to protect you, warn you, guard you, watch over you, keep you accountable. And it's also to encourage you, edify you, build you up, strengthen you, lead you to praise God. And that's your job to me. Person next to you, that's your job. Whether they're your family member, friend, or a complete stranger that you wonder how you ended up next to them this morning. Doesn't matter. Your job is to hold them accountable. And when we don't hold each other accountable, and I think this is one of the mistakes of the Christian church in the last 30 years, is we don't hold each other accountable anymore. There's no sense of propriety in terms of, in terms of what we're doing and what the other person's doing. Like, wow, it's really, man, it really is bad that that person's walking that way, but we don't say a word. We don't do a thing. We barely even pray for them. Jesus says, look at it. If someone's in sin, rebuke them. Now, that's not, hey, come alongside them and put your arm around them and just kind of say, can I, can I just, can I just, I just want to be here for you. We've gotten a little soft in Christianity, haven't we? Jesus says rebuke them. You know what rebuke means? It means to admonish strongly. Admonish strongly. But I love the secondary meaning of the word. I've never seen it before. It means to do that in order to show honor to them. The Greek word, and I rarely give you Greek words, but I'm going to give you this one. It's epitomeo. It's where we get the word epitome from. Okay? So he says, epitomeo them. In other words, rebuke the person to call them back to being the epitome of what it looks like to live for Christ. That's a cool thought. So if I speak strongly when I speak to you from the pulpit, or personally, if I come alongside you and you feel like, wow, Rhodes, man, he kind of rebuked me this morning. It's not because I'm mean and not because I'm harsh and not because I think I'm better than you. It's because I'm your brother in Christ and I want you to be the epitome of what Christ is in your life. And I want you to do that to me. So he says, when they repent, if, if you challenge somebody, you rebuke them, and they repent, forgive them. They do the same thing again to you, forgive them again. They do the same thing a third time, forgive them again. It, it, it just keeps going. There's no limit to it. I say, well, then I'm kind of a patsy. I'm kind of abused. Jesus doesn't address that. He just says, keep forgiving. How does Jesus feel when I keep sinning after 42 years of being his child? I'm sick of it, Rhodes. Enough already. I'm done. I'm done forgiving you. It's done. I said I forgive you forever, but I'm not going to. Anyway. Jesus never does that, right? Forgiveness is eternal. And right after Jesus says this, because we need to move on, what do the apostles say? Kind of a strange thing. They say, increase our faith. In other words, they recognize, look, to be able to do that, that that's not in our character right now. That's not the way we're living. So we're going to ask the Lord to increase our faith. And we need to be extremely careful with our faith because it's everything. It's the foundation for our salvation. It's the security we have in God's promises. It's the comfort in times of difficulty and struggle. It's the essence of prayer. It's the only way you and I can live for Christ is by faith. That's why Hebrews says, without faith, it's what? Tell me, impossible to please God. You can't. 
There's no workaround. There's no alternative. There's no exception. If you don't have faith, you cannot please God. And, and 1 Peter 1 says, our faith is more precious than gold. Do you know there are only three things in the Bible that the Lord calls precious? He calls it the precious blood of Christ. How many say amen to that? The precious blood of Christ. The second thing is the exceeding great and precious promises of God. And the third thing is your faith. Now, if my trust in the Lord is equal in God's sight to the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ and the yea and amen promises of God, then faith must be fairly important, right? Because God calls it precious. Faith is the driver for everything. That means a weak faith doesn't show confidence in the word of God. It doesn't show yieldedness to the Lord. And it makes you vulnerable to temptation. And it hinders your maturity. But when faith is strong and prominent, the Lord actually commends it. Do you know there are a number of times in the Bible where, where Jesus responded to people's faith. But, but the one that really stands out is the centurion whose faith was so strong and so unwavering that the Bible says Jesus was amazed. Now, God's God, right? God of wonders through all the galaxies, you are holy. I mean, nobody answers, uh, God doesn't answer to anybody. God created things that we haven't even discovered yet in the universe that when you look at them, just, just, just today, Google nebulous, all right? And just see what God's created out there that you and I can't see with our naked eye. God has things he's done that are so marvelous, so wonderful, so awesome so amazing that it's breathtaking but it says that when God sees that kind of faith he's amazed the word means to marvel and admire now think about that because it is an unbelievable concept that the Lord would actually be impressed and appreciate our level of trust in him now you say, well, that must be some kind of an amazing faith. I mean, I don't know if I can ever get there. No, go back to verse 6 for a second. Because when the disciples say increase our faith, he says, if you just have faith like a mustard seed, that little tiniest seed, it, it's like, it's like a, a period at the end of your document as you're writing in, in Microsoft Word, a 12 font. It, it's like that little period. That's what a mustard seed is like. He says, if you have a faith just like a mustard seed, it will be so powerful that you could actually say, hey, tree, move yourself. Hey, mountain, move yourself. And he's not speaking hyperbole here. So if you just had that kind of faith, if I had that kind of faith, God would look at that and he would marvel at it. He would be grateful for it. He would appreciate it. He would be, he would be admiring Paul Rhodes or your name. He'd be admiring that level of faith. God's waiting for this. And I don't know about you, but I want a faith that powerful. I want a faith that amazes the Lord. How do we get that? We need to start asking him for it. God, less of me. Increase my faith. I want to be more like Christ. 
I want my faith to be such that every thought is directed away from me and toward you. Oh, Lord, be more present in my life. Fill me more, Holy Spirit. Less of me, less of me, less of me, none of me, all of you. Now turn back to Psalm 51. I'll spend a little less time in this text because it's familiar. Psalm 51. Three simple parts to this very famous prayer that David prays in Psalm 51. As you turn, let me give you the context, although you'll see it at the top of your chapter. David has just committed his worst and most public sin. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba, and by proxy, he's murdered her husband Uriah. He's ashamed, he's broken, he knows he's deeply offended the Lord, he knows that his kingdom is at risk, and that'll show up later when Absalom tries to take over the nation, and family members are killing each other, and the enemy armies show up. I mean, it's, it's an absolute mess. But here in Psalm 51, we see David repenting, and he's, he's begging the Lord, begging the Lord for his grace and his forgiveness and his cleansing. And there's this great phrase in verse 9 where he says, Lord, hide your face from my sins. Then read verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Request number one, Lord, give me stronger faith. Request number two, Lord, give me a steadfast heart. Give me a steadfast heart. We don't use the word steadfast very often in the English language, but it means to be established, consistent, and faithful. And in Psalm 51, David had been none of those things. Even after an exemplary life, steady faith and obedience, he allowed his heart to yield to temptation and it affected not only in the moment but in the months that followed. And even today, 2018, we're talking about David's sin. Faithfulness is so underrated, but faithfulness never disappoints. You will rarely make a grievous mistake when you're consistent and steadfast, especially spiritually. But look at the cost of not doing this. David has to go to the Lord and ask for the restoration of three important assets. First of all, he needs a clean heart and a steadfast spirit renewed in him because he knows he's filthy. Sin is filthy. It's, it's joyless. It drains spiritual life from us. So we need the Lord to purify us. Sin interrupts the consistency of our walk. It's like a, a debilitating cramp when you're running and you're going along and all of a sudden your, 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 your hamstring seizes up and you literally cannot go another minute. It impedes our progress. It stops us. We, we can't exercise our faith because of sin. So if you're wondering, why am I struggling, and why don't I have any joy, and, and, and why do I not seem to be maturing in my faith? Well, the first thing we need to do is go to the Lord and say, create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Because I, I, there must be some sin there, and if you can't identify it, the Holy Spirit will be glad to. Search me, know me, David says. See if there's any wicked way in me. Well, you and I know we have wicked ways in us. So David feels the pain and the failure, and he says to the Lord, Lord, restore my consistency. Next, look at, he says, Holy Spirit, don't move away from me. The Lord is holy, right? We sang it in two songs earlier. 
God doesn't abide in unholy places. So where sin is allowed to abide and where it dominates our heart, the Spirit will be less present. That's why the Bible says to us, be filled with the Spirit daily. Because while He's established a permanent home in our hearts, sometimes we kind of send Him off on some errands. Holy Spirit, uh, I want to I have some sin now. And I know you don't stay where things aren't holy, so I know you reside here. I know you have a key, but, but go away for a while. I want to do my own thing. And listen, God's not going to be mocked. He won't abide in and empower somebody who toys with righteousness. He, he won't spend his time with somebody who's playing around, trying to walk the line between sin and righteousness, trying to, trying to manage both worlds, trying to be part of the old self and the new self at the same time. You know, Second Chronicles 16.9 is a powerful verse. It's a warning and encouragement. The Spirit says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God's looking today. He's walking around this earth. And he's looking for somebody who's got a heart for him. Somebody who's completely committed. Not, not monkeying around. Not trying. Not, eh, not, no. It, God doesn't have time for that. Where's the person who's steadfast? Where's the person whose heart is, is for me? Where's the person who loves me? Who trusts me? Who obeys me? Who honors me? Who respects me? Who tells other people about me? Where's that person? Because I am waiting to strongly support them. I'm looking for that person that has a steadfast heart. So David says, I need a clean heart, steadfast spirit. He says, Holy Spirit, don't move away from me. Third, he says, I need a joyful and willing heart because what does sin do? It robs you of joy. And he felt that. He felt that joy when God saved him. But now his sin has stripped away this joy and contentment. And when that happens, listen now, believer, talking to myself too. When that happens, we need to get on our face and repent and say, Lord, restore that joy. Renew a right spirit within me. And notice what he says. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Willing's the key word because temptation incites disaffectedness, right? Temptation incites reluctance. So you and I need to say to the Lord, Lord, make me willing to be pure. Make me willing to be faithful. Change my attitude. Change my heart. Renew my mind. Renew a right spirit within me. I've got to get back to you. Make me willing. What a great prayer to pray this week. Lord, make me willing to be your servant. We know how to do it. We're not lacking for the word. We're not lacking for intellect and knowledge. We've got the Holy Spirit. But now it's a matter of the will. Quickly, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 3. Let's look quickly at two more. We've studied this text before, recently, where the Lord asks... Solomon, and he says, you have one request, anything you want. Solomon asks for wisdom and discernment. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7. Now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out and come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people who you've chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant 
an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. Third request is, Lord, give me spiritual discernment. Lord, give me spiritual discernment. The wisdom and discernment that we need from the Lord cannot just be pure intellect because without the guide of God's wisdom, we will just be smart idiots. If we just have wisdom, we just have knowledge, and it's not infused with the wisdom of God, it's worthless. Why? Because God is truth. There's no understanding apart from him. That's why the most brilliant scientists in the world can't explain with any credibility or sense how the universe could form out of nothing. It's why they're still busy trying to figure out why magnets have a North Pole and a South Pole. It's why they can't understand how birds can migrate on the same path every year without GPS. It's why they still don't understand why cows only eat facing North or South. Did you know that one? I didn't. Cows will not face East or West when they eat. They will only face North or South. Why? Who knows? But the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Man thinks he's so smart. We know it all. We're discovering stuff every day. Yeah, why does a magnet have a North Pole and a South Pole? Go ahead. I'll wait. Why won't that cow right there face east? Tell me. Uh, 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 uh. It's a cow. Like, we're not talking black holes. It's a cow. Why won't it face the lake? See, man's wisdom, right, is just a tiny little drop in the bucket. It's why mankind doesn't have peace. It's why there's no system of government that's perfect because man can't understand without the wisdom of the Lord. Now Solomon's not even looking for answers that deep. He just says when the Lord says, you can have anything you want. Solomon says, well, I'm kind of young. I'm kind of experienced. I, I, I have this kingdom and I have no idea how to help them or how to lead them or how to judgment. So, so Lord, would you please, and I, I've never seen this before, would you please Give me a heart that can discern between good and evil. Now think about that for a minute. I know we've talked a long time, but think about that because I've never really focused on that before. Solomon asked for wisdom and discernment primarily so he will understand right and wrong and be able to make decisions that follow righteousness. It's that simple. And the Lord says in verses 10 to 11, that's the best request you could have made because you are willing, uh, I'm willing to answer because you have asked for the right thing. Now with that in mind, James 1.5 says that if you and I lack wisdom, don't raise your hand, but I need some wisdom. If you and I lack wisdom, we're to ask from the Lord without wavering in our faith and he will give it to us liberally. In other words, if you and I pray, Lord, help me always to discern what's right and what's wrong. Help me always to discern what is holy and what is unholy. God will be so pleased by that simple request that he will say, I will pour out discernment on you. Think about how that would change the consistency of your life. 
Think about how that simple prayer will change your marriage, how it will change your parenting, how it will change your decision-making and your, your decisions at work and your purity and your ministry, especially those who don't trust Christ. Not only will we have the mind of God and our heart will be undefiled before Him, but now we'll fulfill our calling to be like Christ. Lord, just help me to know right and wrong. Now you say, well, come on, Paul. I've been saved 20 years. Of course I know right and wrong. Really? So are then you never sinning? Because if we say, I know the difference between right or wrong, and we sin, now we're saying, I am intentionally doing the wrong thing. And if we say, I don't know the difference between right and wrong, then how are you a believer? Because God gave us a new heart and a new mind. See, we're trapped, right? So Lord, I need to know right and wrong. I need wisdom and discernment. And listen, if this is our heart and our request, how much more will the Spirit be able to fill us every single day? It's not complex. Lord, just help me discern between good and evil. Fill me with your wisdom so I can live for you. Anyone think God will request or ignore that request? God will say, no, I'm not going to do that. Rhodes, I don't want you to figure out good and evil. Just do your best. Turn to one more text, Acts 4. And let's finish up. Acts chapter 4. Just three verses, verses 29 to 31. Apostles are praying. I'll give you the background in a second. They say, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Prayer number four, request number four, Lord, give me a bold, confident witness. I don't know about you, but I need a greater mouth of witness. I need a stronger, more forthright word of testimony like Michelle did this morning, unashamed, just getting up here. I didn't have enough faith. I wasn't giving it to the Lord, and God convicted me, and there was heartache and trial, but look how he blessed me. Two babies. Blessing that was beyond what I could have expected. And God was faithful. And those precious children that she and Jr. are raising to know the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord for that. Because God answers prayer. And he can pull us out of our pain and our hopelessness and put us into victory. Lord, give me a bold, confident mouth. Give me words that speak a declaration of faith and conviction. And I know that when I do that in this society, it's increasingly going to be called down and ridiculed. But that's no excuse. Because when I look back at Acts chapter 4, they're, they're in the time of their lives in terms of difficulty. And they say, Lord, we want to be more bold for you. Look back at the passage, verse 1. Peter and John are arrested. They're confronted. They're warned. They're threatened. And they say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Jesus is gone. 
They have a lack of education. They have limited experience. It would be easy to just say, you know what? We've been warned. We better lay low for a while. We really have no business doing what we're doing. We know the Holy Spirit's come, but, but man, it's, it's just, let, let's just, let's just relax for a while. But once they're released, oh, it's so beautiful. Verse 25, they go back to the church. And every single person in verses 24 to 26 is convinced that now everyone's against Christ. But instead of that being their cue to quit, it actually incites them and energizes them to the extent that they go to the Lord and they say, we want more confidence. We want more boldness to be able to speak as bond servants of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you keep doing miracles. You keep changing hearts. We just want your power to go out and talk about you and watch you heal people's hearts. And as soon as they pray that, the building starts to shake. And they start to speak with boldness. See how quickly God answers that prayer? As I was studying that, I was reminded of Ann Graham Lotz's words at Billy Graham's funeral on Friday. Many of you have said, did you see it? Yeah, it was, it was powerful. And she said, I now believe more than ever that this is the time of Jesus' return. And now I'm more committed to preaching the gospel. And I'm more committed to speaking words of boldness and teaching the word of God. If we really believe, listen now, that Jesus can come at any moment, shouldn't that be the prayer and determination of our hearts? If Jesus literally could show up in the next 30 seconds and, and, and take his children home, shouldn't our commitment be, I've got to tell more people, I've got to be more bold, I've got to be more courageous, Lord, give me a mouth that speaks that. Give me a mouth that, that is firm. Listen, I don't have Ann Graham Lotz's ministry scope, but God doesn't call me to that. He says, you just be a bondservant and speak my truth. You, you just serve me. So here's the question. Are you and I willing to ask the Lord to do that in and through us? Because I promise that when we pray that, just like he does in the last verse, he'll answer it. And that means we're going to be put into situations and conversations where we are called to stand for the Lord and speak boldly. But listen, we're not doing this for recognition. We're not doing it for our consumption. Like the other three requests, these prayers are to bring glory to God's name and to give to other people. And as that's taking place, our hearts will be so inclined to the Lord and so full of the Spirit with a steadfast heart that's full of wisdom and boldness and faith that's ready to serve the Lord. So let me ask you, I'm done. Which one of those four that you see on your paper is your greatest need? Which area is most efficient and lacking? Which one do you say, Lord, I need to ask you for that for help? Now, I'm sure we could each make a case for all four, but narrow it down to one. Do you need stronger faith? Do you need consistent faithfulness? Do you need wisdom and discernment? Or do you need a bold witness? Let's close our eyes for a minute. Whatever your answer, I want to encourage you, ask the Lord for it right now. You've seen the prayers, they're very simple. Which one do you need? Oh Lord, I need a stronger faith. Increase my faith. 
I need a steadfast heart. I'm inconsistent. I need to be more faithful. Oh, Lord, give me wisdom. Just help me to know right and wrong, just so I make the right decisions. Lord, give me a bold mouth that says the right things. God is not a stingy God. His gifts are full of grace, and he is abundantly planning to be generous with us beyond measure. So if your heart's right, he's not going to turn away from you. He knows your need. He'll meet it. But you and I need to ask for the right things.